0: Hello, welcome to the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast, where it is all about helping amazing physicians just like you create a wealthy life, free from burnout, and with the financial security to practice medicine on your own terms. I'm your host, Dr. Elisa John. Welcome back to another episode of the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Vidya Kulu, who left an amazing five-star review. That starts with, thank you. Much-needed podcast for professionals, especially physicians with delayed gratification as a rule in the early years of training and who are taught and ingrained slash nailed as part of our healthcare mindset culture to put others first, which creeps into all aspects of life, the end result of catching up not until later and to level up and catch up with peers to have financial literacy to make wise investments to improve their financial future. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Vidya, for listening and leaving such an incredible review. Now on with this week's episode. This episode is all about index fund investing, and I'm going to begin with the story of the Warren Buffett challenge. In 2007, Warren Buffett issued a challenge to the hedge fund industry, a $1 million bet that they could not put together a portfolio of hedge funds that would outperform the S&P 500 index fund over a 10-year period. Protégé Partners LLC accepted, and the two parties placed a million-dollar bet, which began on January 1st, 2008. Buffett's contention was that, including fees, costs, and expenses, an S&P 500 index fund would outperform a hand-picked portfolio of hedge funds over 10 years. The bet pit two basic investing philosophies against each other, passive and active investing. Buffett made his entire investment in Vanguard's S&P 500 Admiral Fund with the ticker symbol VFIAX, which has an expense ratio of 0.04%. Soon after the bet started, the financial crisis of 2008 occurred and markets were down. For the first few years, the hedge funds were actually doing quite a bit better. But the premise is that the stock market investing is for the long game, and the bet was for 10 years. In the end, Buffett won his bet. Todd Seeds, Purge Partners co-founder, conceded defeat ahead of the contest's scheduled wrap-up date on December 31, 2017. He wrote, For all intents and purposes, the game is over. I lost. The hedge fund portfolio was up just 22% over nine years. That's slightly better than 2.2% a year. How did the S&P 500 index fund do? It was up 85.4% or 7.1% per year on average. So not great compared to historical returns, but still doing much better than the hedge fund. So index funds may be boring, but with investing, boring can be good. Let's back up for a minute and talk about what is a market index. Investopedia defines a market index as a hypothetical portfolio of investment holdings that represents a segment of the financial market. The index number is a calculation that comes from the prices of the underlying holding. Different indexes are weighted differently. Weighting is a method of adjusting the individual impact of the items in an index. Weighting may be based on values like market cap or revenue. An index can be used as a gauge of the movement and performance of different market segments. An index also provides a benchmark for investors to compare the performance of their portfolio. The three most popular and well-known indexes for the stock market in the United States are the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500 Index, and the Nasdaq Composite Index. As an aside, in the United States, we have two stock market exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange and the Nasdaq. The Nasdaq is a stock market exchange, and the Nasdaq Composite Index is a market index. So they're two slightly different things. They're both the NASDAQ. There's also the Chicago Board Options Exchange, or CBOE, which is the world's largest options exchange. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average was introduced to Wall Street on May 26, 1896, and was the first index of stock market activity. The Dow Jones originally consisted of the 12 biggest companies chosen by Charles Dow. Charles Dow was an American journalist who founded the Financial News Bureau called Dow Jones & Company with Edward David Jones. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was calculated by adding up the closing stock price of the companies on the Dow Jones list and dividing it by the number of companies. The original 12 companies were American Cotton Oil, American Sugar, American Tobacco, Chicago Gas, Distilling and Cattle Feeding, General Electric, the Cleed Gas, National Lead, North American, Tennessee Coal and Iron, U.S. Leather, and U.S. Rubber. Of these companies, General Electric was on the Dow Jones continuously for over 120 years and remains the company that has been on the Dow Jones list the longest. It was removed from the Dow Jones in 2019. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of any of the other companies other than General Electric that was on the Dow Jones when it was originally started. So over the years, companies have been broken up, taken over, and dissolved, and so they fall off the Dow Jones list and get replaced by another company. The Dow Jones continues to be a benchmark for U.S. blue chip stocks, expanded from 12 companies to 20 companies in 1916 and to 30 companies in 1928. Today, the Dow 30 is maintained by the S and P Dow Jones indices and re- represents the thirty largest U.S. companies, excluding transportation and utility stocks, and it is price weighted. The thirty stocks that currently make up the Dow Jones Industrial Average are 3M, American Express, AnGen, Apple, Boeing, Caterpillar, Chevron, Cisco Systems, Coca-Cola, Disney, Dow, Goldman Sachs, Home Depot, Honeywell. IBM, Intel, Johnson Johnson, J.P. Morgan Chase, McDonald's, Merck, Microsoft, Nike, Procter and Gamble, Salesforce, Travelers, United Health, Visa, Walgreens, and Walmart. The name of these companies are all very familiar to us. Just to give you a sense of the Dow Jones historical value, when it first opened in 1896, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 40.94 points. Before the great stock market crash, the stock market peaked on September 3rd, 1929, and at that point, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 381.17 points. The ultimate bottom of the stock market crash was reached on July 8th, 1932, and the Dow stood at 41.22 points at that time. It returned to pre-crash numbers around November 1954, so it did take quite a while. And in November 14, 1972, the Dow crossed 1,000 points. On October 19, 1987, the Dow posted its worst daily average loss in history, closing down 22.6%, or 508 points. This one-day crash, known as Black Monday, was followed by a low of 776.92 points in August 1982 to peaking at 2,000. 722.22 722.22 in August of 1987. On March 29th, 1999, the Dow crossed 10,000 points. On January 14, 2000, at the dot-com peak before the crash, the Dow was at 11,722.98 points. And at the time of this recording, the Dow Jones is at a whopping 31,886.88 points. So with that, you can see that The stock market, as measured by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, has really increased in value significantly over time. The S&P 500 index is considered a better indicator of how the U.S. stock market is doing compared to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, partially just because it has a lot more companies in it. S&P stands for Standard & Poor's. Henry Poor was a financial analyst who compiled an annual book of publicly held railroad companies. The Standard Statistic Company merged with Henry Poore's publication in 1941, creating the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is an equity index made up of 500 of the largest, though not necessarily the largest, companies trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, or the Chicago Board of Equities. And it is weighted by market capitalization. These companies are chosen by a committee. To be eligible to be included in the S&P 500 Index, a company should be a U.S. company that meets market capitalization requirements and be highly liquid. It should have a public float of at least 10% of its shares outstanding, and its most recent quarter's earnings and the sum of its trailing four consecutive quarter's earnings must be positive. As of March 2022, the minimum market cap to be included in the S&P 500 Index is $14.6 billion U.S. dollars. The S&P 500 is calculated by adding the company's float-adjusted market capitalization. The S&P 500 index is calculated by adding the company's float-adjusted market capitalization. Float-adjusted means counting only the shares available to the public, excluding those held by management, government, and other companies. The Nasdaq Composite Index is a market capitalization-weighted index of more than 3,700 stocks that are listed on the Nasdaq Stock Exchange. Unlike the Dow Jones 30 and S&P 500, the Nasdaq includes stocks and companies headquartered outside of the United States. This index was launched on February 5, 1971, and its initial index value was 100. Two versions of the Nasdaq Composite Index are calculated, a price return index and a total return index the total return assumes the reinvestment of cash dividends distributed by companies included in the index. The technology sector currently accounts for just over half of the NASDAQ Composite Index. On April 29, 2022, the technology sector consisted of 51.1% of the NASDAQ Composite Index composition. The next highest is consumer services at 16.1%. That's followed by customer goods at 8.8%. Healthcare at 7.7%, financials at 7.4%, industrials at 5.5%, oil and gas at 1%, utilities at 0.9%, telecommunications also at 0.9%, and basic materials at 0.5%. Because the technology sector has been historically volatile, the index performance of the NASDAQ composite tends to be more volatile than that of the S&P 500 or the Dow Industrial Average. So now that we understand stock indexes, let's talk more about mutual funds. Modern mutual funds were introduced in 1924. The oldest mutual fund still in existence is MFS's Massachusetts Investor Trust, ticker symbol MITTX, which was established in 1924. Mutual funds were created to provide an easy diversification and simplify the investment process. In 1929, there were 19 open-ended mutual funds and 700 closed-ended funds. By the 1950s, there were over 100 open-ended funds with hundreds of new funds launched in the 1960s. All of these funds at that time were active investments. So an active investment involves tracking performance of the investment portfolio and making buy, hold, and sell decisions based about the assets in it. The goal is to outperform the overall market or benchmark. There is a possibility of beating average market gains and a chance of losing less than the market in a downturn, but on average, it does actually perform worse than index fund investing. The concept of passive investment can probably be attributed to the January 1960 issue of Financial Analyst Journal, where Edward Renshaw and Paul Feldstein published an article entitled The Case for an Unmanaged Investment Company. By this time, there were over 250 mutual fund companies, and it was becoming increasingly difficult for someone to know which fund to buy. This paper offered a solution of a, quote, unmanaged investment company, end quote, that didn't try to beat the market, but instead tried to match the market. The paper said that this would also lower costs. The first index fund was actually created in 1971 by William Faust and John McQuone of Wells Fargo. John Andrew McCone, and I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation of his name, was a mechanical engineer who joined Wells Fargo in 1964 to head up the investment decision-making project. He spent years trying to figure out the science of investing. The end result of his work was that he decided that there was no single portfolio manager that could consistently beat the S&P 500. The index fund worked, and big institutional investors started shifting their pension money to index funds. John Bogle, who we all think of as the founder of index funds, actually would later use this concept of the index fund to launch the Vanguard 500 fund on August 31st, 1976. The Vanguard 500 index fund tracks the returns of the S&P 500 and was the first index fund that was publicly available and marketed to retail investors. Before Bogle actually was at Vanguard and launched this index fund, he was actually an active fund manager for many years. On a side note, mutual funds didn't really become widely popular to the average American investor until the 1980s, when there was an unprecedented bull market. There was also creation of the 401k by the IRS in 1978, so by the 80s, there were a lot more individuals that were investing the money in the retirement accounts into mutual funds. An index fund is a portfolio of stocks and or bonds designed to mimic the composition and performance of a financial market index. For index funds, the shares are traded and valued once a day. Index fund investing is a passive investment strategy which seeks to match the risk and return of the market based on the index that's being purchased. So there's no possibility of beating the market gains, and you're guaranteed to lose just as much as the market in a downturn, but on average, it performs better than active investing. An exchange-traded fund, or ETF, is a type of pooled investment security that operates a lot like a mutual fund. An ETF will typically track a particular index, sector, or commodity, and can contain all sorts of types of investments. Exchange-traded funds are purchased and sold on the stock market exchange, similar to the way a regular stock is traded. So you can buy and sell ETF shares throughout the trading day, and the share prices do fluctuate all day. ETFs also tend to have a low expense ratio and be tax efficient. So some examples of mutual funds are the S&P 500 Index Fund, the total U.S. stock market the total international stock market, and the total bond market. Vanguard now has 219 index funds and ETFs. Some of those are different classes of the same index, but that's still a lot of different indexes. To buy an index fund, the first thing you need is an account to buy it in. And generally, you're going to do this in some kind of brokerage account. There are many brokerage firms, but basically there are two types full-service, and discount brokerage firms. Full-service firms tend to have higher fees and higher minimum investments, but these will also provide research advice and more personal interaction. Example of full-service brokerage firms include Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Edward Jones, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. A discount brokerage will have low or no commission fees and low minimum investments, but it's also more of a do-it-yourself approach where you manage your own investments on their online platform. Discount brokerage firms include Vanguard, which I've previously talked about, but also places like Fidelity, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Robinhood, or First Trade. If you're going to do your own index fund investing, you're likely to go with a discount brokerage firm. One thing about Vanguard is that it's not owned by shareholders or held privately, but it's actually owned by the people who invest in Vanguard funds. And this is part of why Vanguard gets so much love, besides the fact that it was the originator of retail index funds. Likely to compete with Vanguard, Fidelity started having zero expense ratio index funds. For full disclosure, I have brokerage accounts at both Fidelity and Vanguard. I do find the Fidelity website a little bit more user-friendly. Fidelity is a privately owned company where Abigail Johnson & Family own 49% and current and former employees own 51%. You can open a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or even a regular taxable brokerage account at most brokerages. Some will also allow you to open different types of retirement accounts like a solo 401k if you have your own business. So if you want to start with index fund investing, you're going to choose a brokerage firm, open an account, and then fund that account. You can fund that account by transferring money from your banking account or sending in a check. Once your account is funded, then pick what index fund you want to buy and buy it. Most people will start out with the S&P 500 index fund, or ETF, or the total U.S. stock market index fund, or ETF. Either one will give you a diversified stock portfolio. If you have money sitting in a bank account that you would like to invest and you don't need it for 10 or more years, then you can consider investing it into one of these index funds. Retirement accounts like your 401k or 403b are a great place to be investing in index funds if your plan offers them. If you have any questions about index fund investing, reach out and let me know. Who knows? I may create a whole podcast episode just for you. You can always contact me at my website, www.GrowYourWealthyMindset.com or connect with me on Facebook or Instagram at Grow Your Wealthy Mindset. As always, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a review. It really helps get the word out. And now the disclaimer, I am not a certified financial professional and this show is really just for your education as well as your entertainment. I'm also a physician, but I'm probably not your physician. So if you need any medical advice, please consult your own physician. Thank you.